You're listening to McKinsey's Future of America podcast, featuring conversations inspired by a new era of sustainable and inclusive growth. Welcome to the third episode of McKinsey's Future of America podcast, where we'll explore how we can build a future that drives sustainable and inclusive growth. This isn't about trade-offs. We reject the or and embrace the and. Join us in conversation with leaders who are accelerating progress to grow, broaden, and sustain prosperity for more Americans. I'm your host for today, Andre Dua. I'm a senior partner with McKinsey, the managing partner of our Miami office, and a member of our McKinsey Global Institute Council. I personally regularly publish insights related to inclusive growth and economic opportunity, including about McKinsey's semi-annual American Opportunity Survey, which explores Americans' perceptions of who is and who isn't served by our economy. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Eric Tuning, a partner in our Washington, D.C. office and the co-leader of McKinsey's Aerospace and Defense Practice in the Americas. Eric has two decades of experience advising decision makers in national security, and he has deep expertise in improving U.S. manufacturing and helping companies drive sustainable and inclusive growth. Eric, welcome, and thanks for being here today. Hey, no problem, Andre. Thanks for the invitation to join the podcast. Of course. Well, listen, maybe let's start by having you perhaps tell our listeners a little bit about your background because you really had a very interesting and varied career. Yeah, it's definitely allowed me to see the U.S. manufacturing ecosystem from a couple of different perspectives. So I started off with an investment banker where I covered industrial companies, and then I um, enlisted in the Army after September 11th. And so I served in the Army for four years, did a deployment to Iraq in 2004, 2005 timeframe, and then came out, went to business school and, and found my way into consulting and ultimately here at the firm at McKinsey. And then I ended up um, in 2017 uh, going over to the Department of Defense where I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Industrial-Based Policy. And in that role at DOD managed the uh, industrial base as well as manufacturing portfolios and then went on to be the uh, Chief of Staff for two of our U.S. Defense Secretaries and then came back to the firm in April of 2020. Right now, co-lead McKinsey's Aerospace and Defense Practice in the Americas. Before we jump into it, I want to maybe ask um, one thing about your career, because it's a pretty interesting move. When you came out of the army, what made you decide to go to business school at that stage? That seems that's quite a left turn. Yeah, I, uh, I think in a lot of ways, I sort of did the reverse. Most folks kind of were in the military first and, and, and then found their way into consulting or banking. And I sort of started off in banking and then went into the army. I always knew service to my country was important. And when I had the opportunity to serve, I did. But I knew it was something that I wanted to do as part of a career, not make a career. And and going to business school was the opportunity to sort of reinsert yourself back into the business ecosystem and um, kind of re-familiarize myself with what corporate America was like. Right. But it really seems like the different strands of your career have come together, which is understanding of financial system, understanding of the military, then business, then working at DOD and so forth. So that's it's really interesting how those things have been integrated. But look, today we're here to discuss inclusive growth. And specifically, we're going to talk about sustainable inclusive growth in the context of U.S. manufacturing. But before we dive into that, I want to just zoom out a little bit and let's talk about manufacturing more broadly, because I think many of our listeners are probably paying more attention to manufacturing um, than they normally do, partly because they see the impact of supply chain disruptions on their own experience as consumers. I mean, there are shortages of goods and goods take longer to get to them and so forth. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the current state of U.S. manufacturing and how important U.S. manufacturing is for our economy? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. So at the headline level, 
The United States manufacturing accounts for about $2.3 trillion of GDP. It employs about 12 million people and supports hundreds of, of local economies across the country. Now, those headline numbers don't really capture the outsized impact of manufacturing, although it only accounts for about 11% of our GDP and 8% of direct employment. It drives 20% of our nation's capital investment, 30% of our productivity growth, 60% of our exports, and over 70% of business R&D. And it also generates important spillover effects that help impact the broader economic activity in related sectors. You know, I saw this firsthand when I was at DOD, the impact of U.S. manufacturing, but then also candidly, the decline of U.S. manufacturing in some ways. Since, you know, we, we've lost about 25% fewer manufacturing firms since 1997, Uh, That reflects closures as well as fewer manufacturing startups. And over that period, we lost about 4.5 million manufacturing jobs. Well, actually, you you mentioned a lot of statistics, which I think overall I take to mean that relative to its contribution to GDP and to direct employment, there's actually significantly more impact from the manufacturing sector. One really caught my attention, which was that it contributes 30% of uh, productivity growth. That may be a little counterintuitive for folks. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about why is it that the manufacturing sector drives so much productivity growth? Yeah, well, I mean, so manufacturing is a critical enabler of what we would call technical innovation, right? So think about improvements to processes that underline how we make things. And so as you get more efficient how we make certain activities, it not only creates additional jobs, but it also drives overall productivity. But I think it's important to note, despite those productivity growths, the overall decline of manufacturing in some sectors has created challenges. And and you mentioned, Andre, in the beginning, the impact folks have felt through COVID-19 and the the microchip shortage now, if you wanted to go buy a car, for example. You know, my wife was looking at new cars, uh, you know, this week, and the, the wait time she was quoted were almost a year when you think about it, which is, you know, something yeah. that I've, I've never experienced before. When I was at DOD, you know, we saw this in a couple of ways. There's like, for example, a sole source dependency, meaning there's just one single supplier for a range of specialty chemicals that we would use for our munitions and missiles. Uh, we're down to four large domestic suppliers for complex alloy castings that you would use for fixed wing aircraft or helicopters. And like something even as simple as sort of large cal- caliber gun barrels, right? Like tank tubes are all manufactured in a single factory. <laughs> you see those sorts of impacts, not just in the broader economy, but for the supply chains that that we rely on for national security. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's maybe stick on that for a minute, because I think listeners are probably interested in some of the effects of that. So yes, on the one hand, we've got COVID-19. On the other hand, we've got what some people believe is a potential de- decoupling of the economy into one which is very US and Europe led and one which maybe has China at the center of it, particularly on the technology side. And then in addition to that, we've got some disruptions caused by the conflict in Ukraine. Um, that has all sorts of implications for energy. And you know, I think at the same time, we do hear a lot of discussion about the supply chain and in particular, the need to move from a focus on supply chain efficiency to supply chain resiliency, meaning one that can handle these sorts of disturbances and shocks. Let me ask you, what do you think all of these different trends and disruptions mean for the geographic footprint of manufacturing? Because, you know, you just described that the geographic footprint in the U.S. has declined from a direct job perspective and that there are fewer suppliers of things. But do you think we might see a resurgence of U.S. manufacturing? Say a little bit about what's going to happen to manufacturing in light of all this. I mean, listen, I think 
you know, when I think about manufacturing, it really hits at the intersection of economic and national security, right? And if we think about four core goals that, you know, as you would think about the future of America, I think manufacturing plays an important role, right? The first is around boosting productivity and economic growth, right? As we talked about, manufacturing has historically made outside contributions to productivity and overall economic health for the country. And and, and if we're going to continue to drive GDP expansion, manufacturing is going to have to play an important role. Um, the second thing, and this is Andre, but where, where you were headed, you know, manufacturing is critically important for supporting uh, jobs and incomes for workers and communities, particularly workers and communities not on the coasts, right? So while, while manufacturing may not provide the kind of mass employment it once did, no other sector plays the same role in supporting middle-income jobs across the country, uh, especially outside of large cities, right? And so uh, as you think about the opportunity with manufacturing, manufacturing makes up the largest economic employer in 500 counties across the United States, right? So it's a broad-based driver for economic growth. Two other quick things I think are the role of manufacturing enhancing overall innovation and competitiveness, right? Those are the uh, positive externalities we talked about uh, in the beginning. And then there's this idea that you're touching on, which is, you know, how do we think about the role of manufacturing and driving national security and resilience? And, you know, I think an interesting statistic there for, for my for my prior life is about 70% of value-added manufacturing consumed in the United States comes from North America. And when you compare that to other large peer economies, you know, just pick China as an example, you know, 90% of China's value-added manufacturing comes from within their region. And so if you if you think about that, right, this sort of means that the U.S. is potentially more susceptible to yeah. a global supply chain disruption than, than other economies. Right. Well, I want to pick up on one of those because I think it's a nice segue. You mentioned that one of the benefits of manufacturing in the U.S. is that it does support jobs um, for workers and communities uh, that are not on the coast and a lot of middle income jobs in particular. So let's maybe talk a little bit about the impact that U.S. manufacturing has or can have on the twin topics of inclusion and sustainability. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I think about it as there's a lot of ways to define inclusion. And if you just pick one, let's talk about skill-based inequality in the United States. Nine out of 10 American adults have a high school degree or a GED. About 50% have bachelor's degrees or higher. And so, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, you've got to make sure our economy is generating those high quality jobs for folks who don't have bachelor's degrees. And manufacturing plays a unique role in doing that, right? Because often manufacturing jobs are skill-based, not degree-based, right? So you can get involved in them through uh, apprenticeship programs or licensing programs. And they, they, they create great economic opportunity for folks who may not live in the coast, they're in, in, in the middle of the country, but then they also have access to high paying, good jobs without the need for a college degree. Right. Now, let me sort of follow up a little bit. One of the real questions that people have is related to the extent to which different industries are providing opportunity for people of different backgrounds, right? And you mentioned one, which is people of different educational backgrounds. What's your sense of what's going on in manufacturing as it relates to providing opportunities to people of different genders and racial background. How does manufacturing do relative to other sectors? And are there interesting things going on there that we should be aware of? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I think when you think about the opportunity in, in manufacturing, because 
it sort of there's a, like a, a general recognition that job growth in the United States, driven through manufacturing, you know, you have the opportunity to incorporate folks from diverse backgrounds. And I know many individual manufacturers are very focused on that. I think too, the this idea around manufacturing creating broad-based economic growth. And again, I think it's important to think about that broad-based economic growth, not, not just through a lens around you know, gender or, or race, but to think about it more broadly, right? In terms of what it can do for, for gender, what it can do for race, but then what it can do for different educational backgrounds and geographic backgrounds as well to really get that broad-based economic growth. Right. Now, one of the big issues that obviously has come to the fore again, partly because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict are the set of issues around climate change and sustainability. Now, obviously, these have been getting back on the agenda. There's a real, I think, sense that uh, time is running out in some way. And there's a lot of talk about how different industries get to net zero in terms of their contribution to emissions. How is manufacturing handling this or how are companies that are in manufacturing handling this how seriously are they taking this? And what opportunities or challenges do you think are presented by these set of issues? Yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see the, what the SEC does ultimately with some of the, 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 the rule changes around accounting for carbon within a supply chain, right? Because, you know, if, if, if some of those rules do go forward, you could see an impact that a shortening of supply chains and a co-location and reshortening of supply chains to address some of the, the carbon footprint issues m- might be a natural outcome for that. I think the other, th- the other thing we see going on is you can't bucket manufacturers all in with one label, right? You have to think about different manufacturing archetypes. And, you know, as we've yep. researched this, you know, there are really four, right? There's, there's a set of manufacturing activities that are scale-based, where, you know, competitiveness is driven by standardization and specialization for mass production. You know, like think of like a steel mill as, a, mm-hmm. as an archetypal example there. There is others where they're driven by learning curve effects, process engineering and exponential growth through learning, right? Like a semiconductor fab would fall into that yeah. category. And then the R&D designed and, and flexible manufacturing archetypes. Um, you know, an R&D based one would be like a, like a fabless semiconductor design house and then a flexible. And it's this flexible archetype that I think potentially has the most value for the situation you're describing because they're... You know, manufacturing competitiveness revolves around the ability to do high value, low volume production using flexible capacity co-located near the sources of consumption, right? And you can imagine that that smaller batch production co-located near a city would really begin to fit a type of manufacturing archetype that would be, would be supportive of the type of environment you're describing. Right. Well, now maybe let's look ahead into the future a little bit. One last question before we take a quick break, which is um, pull out your crystal ball. Um, What's next for U.S. manufacturing? Where are we headed? I mean, it's a great question, right? Because I think we are certainly in a a position now where there's a lot of discussion to your earlier point around what role might reshoring have here in the United States or reshoring back to North America broadly, right? So whether it's the U.S. or Mexico and, and how that might occur, as I look at it, you know, I really put the focus on, you know, at a national level, what are the policies we want to be able to put in place to drive manufacturing competitiveness writ large, recognizing that because manufacturing remains one of the main economic engines, you know, and primary employer for over 500 counties here in the United States, what, what do we need to do? to overall enhance competitiveness and as a result, sort of lift all boats. And a lot of that's going to come down to our ability to drive forward industry 4.0 technologies to further increase productivity enhancements. Terrific. Why don't we take a quick break and then we'll come back for our next segment. 
We're back from our break. Eric, I wanted to talk a little bit about economic opportunity in America. It does seem clear that the economy is recovering in a number of respects. Employment is up, wages are up, and they're up particularly higher among lower income Americans. GDP growth has recovered to some extent. And yet what's interesting is at the same time, many Americans say they don't feel like there is great economic opportunity available to them, their families, and in the country overall. You know, a big piece of this is the ability to reskill and upskill to prepare yourself and your family for the future economy. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing happening in reskilling and upskilling, both in manufacturing and across the economy? Yeah, no, sure. So, I mean, I, I think this idea around a human capital investment is increasingly important, you know, particularly as you look at some of the dislocation in jobs, right? So you've got a couple of things going on. You've got a certain segment of the of the population that sort of used COVID and then retired. And then you've got a, the creation of these new digital jobs where you clearly, there's a human capital need for us to fill, but we need to get those types of skills in place. And I'll give you a really good example. A lot's been made about the need for reshoring certain semiconductor fabs back to the US, right? And CHIPS Act is a good example, the $52 billion investment going yep. to Congress. Uh, but also large chip manufacturers have announced large investments, you know, hundreds of billions worth of dollars, right? Intel, TSMC, Samsung. Well, once we sort of poured the concrete and begin to get those, those facilities all in place, where are we going to find the engineers and the lab techs and, the, and all the workers to run those, right? I mean, as we've looked at this, you're talking about tens of thousands of jobs where we haven't really created a pipeline for, 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 for addressing what those needs are. And, and I think that's part of this reskilling challenge is it, it's not just giving folks sort of a, a sense of optimism, which it does, but it's beyond that, right? It's also, what are we doing to make sure we're, we're, we're creating role, we're creating human capital to fit the jobs we need to have in the future? Right. You know, um, one of the things you and I've talked about in the past are some of the different sectors you've been involved in. And one which I've always found particularly interesting, because in a way, it's a microcosm of so many different issues in that sort of sub-industry, and that's shipbuilding. Yeah. Um, and I know it's a bit of a departure from the last question, but I would be interested to hear you sort of describe what is going on in the shipbuilding industry in a particular geography in America. And, you know, what can we learn from that? And what are you seeing? Sure. No, I mean, I, when I was at, at, at DOD, one of the areas where I spent a lot of time was our industrial base around shipbuilding, um, in part because we're, we're at a point now where we're, we're, we're increasing the amount of investment that the country is making in ships. You know, as a, an example, we're moving to a rhythm where we're, we're we're going to move to three, producing three submarines a year rather than two. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about it, it's like a 33% production increase, right? In submarines. So, um, so what, what does that really mean? And the other thing that's neat about shipbuilding, particularly, particularly when we talk about submarines, is it's this unique combination of old school metal bending coupled with high tech digital engineering mm. and, and, and really high tension skills, right? Like nuclear propulsion, you know what I mean? And so how do you create a workforce that's able to handle all of those things? And as we move to that, to that, that, that three submarine a year strain, uh, pace production, it's creating a tremendous strain on the workforce and the supply chain. And so one of the things that, that we worked on uh, very aggressively was expansion of the necessary skills. And often you're talking about trade skills, right? Welders, fitters, plumbers, very, very important jobs. We've talked about before, they're important jobs that don't necessarily require a college degree. How, how are we generating that human capital, particularly in the areas where our shipyards are, right? And so within the United States, uh, as it comes to submarines, we've got what two producers, 
the Newport News business down in, in Hampton Roads, Virginia, and the electric boat uh, facility up in, up in Groton, Connecticut. And what's interesting about both of those, is, and I'll just focus on Virginia for a minute, because this, you know, it's, it's where I am. The Hampton Road region, where the shipyards are co-located, also have some of the highest areas of average poverty rates in the Commonwealth, right? And so you're in this situation where we're going to need jobs. We're going to need jobs that are skill-based, don't necessarily require college degrees, co-located in communities where they could use the jobs, right? And so that's a natural made opportunity uh, and, 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 and folks taking advantage of that, where in this instance, uh, Huntington Ingalls, which is the largest employer in Virginia, it's our largest military shipbuilder, is working with the Commonwealth of Virginia and DOD to try and get folks into apprentice schools and training programs to get them trained up for those jobs. And I know that the states of Connecticut and Rhode Island are doing something similar for electric boat uh, in Connecticut. And I, I think that's a, it's a really interesting example of how you get public and private actors together to really drive uh, human capital development for manufacturing jobs, critical to national security. Yeah, well, I think it's also an example of the more sophisticated conversation we need to have about post-secondary education. We tend to think very simplistically of universities, maybe community colleges, but we're not talking about all the different segments and types of institution that are needed, often for jobs that don't require traditional university degrees. We're also not talking about more partnerships between government, the private sector, and these educational institutions to meet specific needs. So I think there's an opportunity for a much more sophisticated discussion. But let's stick on the topic of defense for a minute, because I think uh, as we do, there's another big issue in the world which people are thinking about, which is this topic of inflation. Um, And it's the reason I want to bring these two issues together is we're at a moment where, again, because of this conflict, um, countries Germany being one of them, are rethinking their total commitment to defense spending. But obviously, everyone is doing so in the context of a higher inflation environment. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what this means in terms of defense affordability and kind of where we go from here and meeting our defense needs in this kind of economic environment. Yeah, we, 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 uh, it's a great question. We, we just published a piece on this looking at uh, with the president's 23 budget request to Congress as it related to defense and the the impact, the difference in inflation rates would have on overall DOD buying power. And so the sort of assumptions that were in the budget request were sort of an inflationary environment. And whenever you do defense forecasting, they do it over what's called the FIDEP or the five-year defense plan. So you can get a sense for the, you know, the shipbuilding plan ends up being like a 30-year plan, but they try and create visibility so folks can kind of see what outlays are going to look like. And in this instance, you know, the inflationary assumptions were around two to 3%. But, you know, we're just coming off a quarter where inflationary assumptions were, you know, 7%, right, uh, real, really impacted. And when you look at the way DOD experiences inflation, it's usually 20 basis points higher than the rest of the economy. And they're particularly susceptible to increases in fuel prices. So what, what we looked at is just, listen, if you actually play out this delta in inflationary assumptions, right? And, and you could see like during the 70s, uh, the stagflation period, you know, extended periods of higher, higher rates of inflation, you're really, really going to begin to erode the DOD's buying power as it comes to, you know, modernization of equipment. And, and that then puts a new onus on industry as they think about, how are you going to increase productivity improvements to preserve some of that sort of claw back some of that buying power in a higher inflationary environment? Right. Now, I want to come back to a little bit of your career, which is obviously, you know, you've been in the military. And I think there are 
interesting lessons to learn from the military. And last year, you wrote a little bit about lessons that we can learn from the military to combat the COVID-19 crisis. Um, I'd like to see whether you think there are also lessons that we can learn from the military as leaders think about the issues of how to spur sustainable, inclusive growth in the economy and in their organizations. I mean, uh, the military has a very unique way of doing things, and presumably there are some interesting insights that we can all learn from them. Yeah. You know, for me, my time in the U.S. Army was the most inclusive organization that I've ever been a part of. And I know for folks who haven't served, that may sound a bit counterintuitive. But, you know, as I think about my own experience with my my unit, particularly the one I served with when we were in Iraq, you know, we had a Japanese American as our battalion commander. Our, Our company commanders were a Native American, a Puerto Rican, and a white person like myself. Uh, all the soldiers came from every different conceivable walk of life. We had Ivy League mm-hmm. students. We had West Point students. We had enlisted kids right out of high school, right? You had me yeah. who just came from an investment banking career. Uh, you had people with master's degrees through GEDs. And it was a great group of, of folks who were united by a common mission. They had a, set, a shared sense of purpose. But, but it was because each individual leader from the commander on down created a culture of trust. And I, I think often when corporate leaders talk about sustainable, inclusive growth, there's the potential for the discussions to veer off in certain directions. And, and I think it's important that we maintain cultures of trust and a common sense of purpose, right? Because I think when you're able to do that within an organization, uh, you're able to, you're, 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 you're going to get much better outcomes. And, 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 I, and I think that, that was certainly true from you know, the teams I've worked with in the, in the military. Right. Let's stick with this topic of sustainable, inclusive growth for a second. And I'm curious for your thoughts on what actions do you think leaders can take generally to build a more sustainable and inclusive future for all Americans? And again, I think just for our listeners, I think it's maybe worth recapping why we think this matters, right? Without growth, there can't be more opportunity for more people. Without sustainability, we don't necessarily bequeath to future generations a world which continue to be prosperous and have many of the natural assets and so forth. And without inclusivity, um, not everyone has their opportunity to participate in uh, in opportunity making a better life for their families. So, but in that context, what do you think leaders should be doing to build a sustainable and inclusive future for Americans? Yeah. I- I mean, I always think of the power of example is important, right? And this idea around how can you create a alignment on a vision and then make folks feel comfortable that there's a place for them in the future that you're outlining. And, you know, I, there's, in my mind, in any type of transfor- transformative F change effort, that, that's sort of the beginnings of the bare, the, the sort of the bare minimum table stakes that as a leader, you got to be able to put in place. Right. And so, um, and I think that's true with SIG. I think the nice thing about sustainable inclusive growth is that it's, it's amorphous enough, right. Where you can describe, describe it in a way and describe kind of the value proposition in a, in a tailored context, but it's real enough where people can kind of see the type of future you're describing, right? One where there's economic opportunity, one where that economic opportunity is broad-based and everyone has a chance to, to benefit from it. And it's done in a way where you're, you're creating a healthier community. And, 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 I, and it's, hard, it's, it's hard to find someone who's going to disagree with that value proposition as you hit each of the, each of the specific points. Great. Listen, we're going to take another quick break and then I'm going to come back and ask you some rapid-fire Q&A. So get ready, Eric. Fair enough. Thank you. 
We're back from our break and talking to Eric Tuning. Eric, thanks for sharing your insights with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, look, I, I actually just want to reflect on a couple of things that I found really interesting. And there was a lot we covered here, but at bottom first, it just made me realize how differently we need to think about US manufacturing going forward because it's so important. But the reason we need to think about it differently is we're entering a world in which resilience is increasingly important. Yeah. And then secondly, there are some really significant national security implications of not having the right manufacturing footprint. So I think my first big takeaway is it's time to have an elevated dialogue about US manufacturing. The second thing I kind of take away from this discussion, Eric, is the absolute importance of talent. There resides in our American citizens and residents an enormous amount of talent. And as a nation, we'll be well served to invest in that talent and to find ways to pull them into productive work because it's going to be a huge unlock for this country. So I really think that's an important thing that really ran through a lot of the conversation. But, you know, Eric, here on this podcast, we like to wrap up these Future of America episodes with a few quick questions. We always ask the same three, so I'm going to hit them now. So is there a book or article that you've recently read that excites you about a more sustainable and inclusive future? So first of all, I think great summary. In, in line with that, the, the book I'll reference was written by a friend of mine, uh, Matt Coring at Georgetown. And he wrote a book on the return of great power robbery. And the book looks at historical competitions where relatively democratic versus more autocratic governments competed, you know, going back to Athens and Sparta all the way through the, the, the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. And he makes this argument that the countries with a relatively more open government and inclusive societies sustain long-term advantage in the international system because they get economic growth, because diplomatically they're able to better be more inclusive when it comes to management of allies and coalitions, and that they've got better military strength because the societies hang better together and they're more innovative in their decision-making. And, and I like this idea around SIG as a national competitive advantage, not just for companies, but for societies. I think that's an, that's an interesting kind of thought experiment to explore. Yep. Well, and I just want to make sure our listeners got that. Can you say the name of the book one more time? Oh, uh, yeah. Time? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Matt, Matt Coring, uh, K-R-O-E-N-I-N-G at Georgetown. Terrific. So second question, what makes you optimistic that we can achieve sustainable and inclusive growth? You know, if you talk to just everyday folks, right, and you ask them, you know, do you want a future for America where your kids have opportunity? Do you want one where there's broad-based economic growth for everyone? And do you want it where you've got a healthier community? They're going to say yes to all three of those questions. And, and then you say, okay, that's great. So now we've sort of aligned on kind of the type of future we want to have. Now let's take the next step and talk about how we get there, right? And I think mm-hmm. often alignment around a vision uh, is sometimes the hardest part, but it, it can be the most important. There's real work to be done after that, but you're part of the way there. Right. And lastly, What's the one thing that listeners can do to help promote sustainable and inclusive growth themselves? Uh, you know, in theme with our discussion, I'm going to say to support domestic manufacturing. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Eric. Well, that was Eric Tuning, a partner in our Washington, D.C. office and the co-leader of McKinsey's Aerospace and Defense Practice in the Americas. And I'm Andre Dua. You've been listening to McKinsey's Future of America podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Future of America podcast. 
We're thrilled you're joining us as we explore the journey toward a more sustainable and inclusive and growing economy. Be sure to subscribe to the Future of America podcast on whichever platform you use and check out our insights and research on these topics at mckinsey.com slash future of America. Thanks for being a part of the Future of America.